We've read this passage every week in this series and we'll continue to until the end. We're almost there. We're almost ready to land it. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10, says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So we have spent several weeks talking about this, and we've gone through this armor piece by piece. We had to discover who is our enemy and who we were battling against. But not only that, is how does he get into our lives? Because he doesn't have an exterior impact in our life. And he has absolutely no authority. We know that. So how on earth are we still doing battle? And why on earth are we still doing battle? And so we've gone through this armor piece by piece. And the one thing that you'll notice is that there are six pieces of armor that are mentioned. The loin belt of truth is where we started, right? Everything, every part of the Roman army's armor would somehow or another attach to this belt. It was crucial. It's the same thing with the Word of God. The foundation is truth. We have the truth. And in by knowing that we have the truth should make us very confident in our faith. Not just confident in what we believe, but confident when we share it. Because we have nothing. I don't care what science comes up with. We cannot trump the Word of God. Because it is the truth. Righteousness was another one. That the righteousness that we have covers everything that is vital to us. It's, it's an important part and in how in, innate this thing was. The shoes of peace and the shield of faith, all of these things that we had that were very, very important. You know, the shoes were very, they weren't just, you know, these were not Birkenstocks that you bought at JCPenney's. These things were a brutal weapon, a purpose. The shield of faith, the thing that goes in front of us. Right Above all, take the shield of faith. Our faith stands out there stopping everything that comes through. The helmet of salvation. The thing that protects where the very battle is taking place. Our salvation protects our mind. It's that knowledge, that understanding, that acceptance of truth of what our salvation is and the promises that come from it. And of course, the last one being the sword of the Spirit, which we talked about last week. If you missed last week, you need to go back and listen to that one. There was a lot of truth in that. The Lord showed me a lot of things several months ago, and it was really hard to hold my excitement for it uh, to get this far. But the sword of the Spirit is sharp. It's sharp, sharper than any two-edged sword. The purpose of this thing that separates the mind, soul, however you want to say it, from the Spirit. Our thoughts, our ways from the ways of God. It separates all of that. But there is a problem in the description of the armor here. There's something that most of us wouldn't even catch, wouldn't pick up on, but there's actually a debate among scholars. Because Paul left it short by one piece. 
If you study your history, these historians have looked at this error that Paul's had, and that's what they're calling it, because the armor was incomplete, because he didn't mention the fact that they carried a lance or a spear. Actually, he carried several of them. It wasn't just one. And so a lot of people have said, well, he must not be pointing to the Roman armor. He must have something, or maybe this is just spiritual insignificance. It's the, the arguments between historians and Bible scholars, right? They, they're, they're two worlds that never seem to want to collide together. But... It's interesting how Paul does this, because there's something in the Bible that you'll notice. There's patterns, right? You see these patterns, and there's always this pattern of six plus one in the Bible. It will list six things, and then the seventh thing will somehow be different. Think about creation, right? Creation, what happened? In six days, God created and then the seventh day he rested. It was different. And there was a purpose to that seventh day rest because later he would tell the Israelites, I want you to keep this day as a Sabbath and rest just like I did. There was a purpose to it, but it was different. It was a six plus one. And you see these all throughout, but I want you to look at one specifically in Luke chapter 18. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> we need a defibrillator here soon, so it's the Holy Ghost. No, I'm just kidding. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 31. Now, I want you to look at here. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything is about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Now look at this list. Here we got. First thing he says, I'm going to be delivered to the Gentiles. The second one, he will be mocked. He'll be insulted. He'll be spit upon. He'll be scourged. And then they're going to kill him. But what is the seventh one? The third day, he will rise again. So you've got six things that man is going to do to Jesus. The seventh one is what God is going to do. You see this pattern a lot through scriptures. The six plus one concept, okay, and I don't want to go and paint all the, you know, show every uh, instance of this because there's a lot of them, but, but just trust me on this, there are a lot out there. You can go and study that for yourself. But in the armor, the first six pieces are immediately likened to something, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, uh, breastplate of righteousness, all of that. But the seventh isn't. And Paul said that we are to put on the whole armor of God. And if it's true that the lance is part of the armor that he is referring to, and th then commentators are claiming that it's not possible for us to put the whole thing on. Because we just don't have it all. Because the spear was a very strategic part. It was, a, it was integral to what was going on. So if the lance is not there, then we don't have the whole armor of God, and therefore we can't put it on, right? That means that what Paul said is an impossibility to what we have to do, right? These are the things that super smart people argue about it, and we're all sitting there like, is this really that complicated? It's really not that complicated. So let's look at some of these lances. The lances that these, the Roman army would use, they varied greatly in the size and shape, um, even the heads of these things. So the old Greek lances that were used during Homer's time were normally made of ash wood and were about six to seven feet long, and the head of it was about three feet long. Uh, it was made of iron. Now, ash is an incredibly strong wood, incredibly strong. A lot of what we deal with today is pine. If you've ever built anything with two by four, it's soft, it's pli I say it's pliable, but I mean it is just, you can hit it with a hammer and leave marks and, and all of that kind of stuff. You break it very easily. It's, it's almost too soft. But ash is not like that. It's incredibly hard. It was very durable. The head 
of this thing. So it would be three feet long, real thin, and then it would have this head on it, and it would resemble something like a leaf or a sharp barb, or it would have a jagged point. You can kind of see the pictures there. Uh, sometimes we even have this pyramid shape, and it was all by design. So you can kind of see that there, uh, three feet long. So the whole thing was somewhere around eight to nine feet. That was one of the most popular ones. But there were also small ones, and some of them were even longer. So the smaller ones that they would use were mainly for gouging people up close. They would run in there and attack them and stuff. The longer ones, of course, were used for hurling. They would throw them a long distance. And so during the time of this Greek historian named Xenophon, starts with an X, if you're trying to write that down, these armies would carry all these different kinds of lances. There were short ones. There were long ones. There were narrow ones. There were some that were wider. There were some that were very, very pointed. There were some that were dull. They weren't even sharp. Uh, some of them were very jagged, and some of them had multiple blades on them to do different things. They all had a different purpose. The average soldier would carry five short lances and one long one. And so, and of all the lances that the ancient world would use, the Macedonians actually used the longest one. They would use one that was somewhere between 21 and 24 feet long. It would be the size of a telephone pole to give you an idea of how long this thing is, okay? It was huge. The one that primarily used by the Roman army, can you go back to that picture, is uh, the one that you saw here. It's called a pilum, P-I-L-U-M, and you see it there, and you see this part here that's bent, and that's significant. So these things were about six to eight feet long with the top three, as I said, were made of iron, but the iron was actually soft. And so this is an actual excavated one. That's a remake of one. But you see how it's bent. And so what would happen is they would throw these things at their enemies. So they'd be fortified. They'd have their shields there. And they would throw those six to eight foot long ones at them. And it would pierce their shield. And what would happen is the head would bend. And that was by design. Because if it was stiff and straight, they could probably easily pull it out. But they're holding this shield, in fact, they held it in their right arm, and when it would bend, it would basically be like a baseball bat. They couldn't get it out, and it would force them to drop their shield because it was now useless. You've got this big old long thing hanging off the end of it. And so it was actually a brilliant design, which at first a lot of people thought it wasn't, but you can actually see that's just one example of something that happened. Vegetus was a Roman historian. He would write about the early institution of the Roman army. And he talked about another lance that they would use. And this one was about five and a half feet long, and it had a three-pointed head that was between nine and 12 inches long. They later modified it and made it a little bit smaller, down to about three and a half feet and then five inches long. You know, so that was just one of them that they used. Another one that they used was by the Calvary. And this thing was very long. It was 16 to 17 feet long. You might picture, if you've ever seen jousting, get that concept in your head because they're on horseback. And now it wasn't the big, they're not in suits of armor like you think of, of that time. But, but something similar, that it was very long. And this was extremely effective against people on the ground because they didn't have to get off their horse to fight. They could carry this thing alongside. And so the fact that the Romans introduced this, but the Spanish stole it because it was very effective. And when the Spanish came to the New World, when they came to America, they brought this concept with them. And the Indians of the Southwest tribes took this idea. It was pro primarily the Comanche tribes that took it. Because, and they loved it. So most Indians would ride in on horses, but would have to jump off and fight. They would shoot arrows from horses, or they'd jump off. They'd have their swords and stuff. But the Comanches would be able to spear them from their horses. From, they'd never have to get onto the ground. It gave them an advantage. And so it was something that was very uh, uh, beneficial to them. If you've ever heard the name Jedediah Smith, 
Jedediah Smith was an old cowboy type guy, and he was a believer, he was a Christian. And uh, he was a good guy and did a lot of good things, but one of the problems that he had is that everywhere he would go, he would constantly run out of water. He never brought enough water with him, and so he would have, his men would die and things like that. And so one time, the, uh, he found this little lake, but it was wrong place, wrong time. The were there getting ready to essentially bull rush a bunch of buffalo. And here comes this guy whom they don't know. So they rush up on him and they kill him, which is how he died. It was by the Comanches through this whole process. It was an incredibly effective weapon that it was brought over here. I mean, it was used for hundreds of years, so it was very effective. And so the different sizes and shapes of all these things, they had different purposes for what they were used for and how they were used. The heavier the spear, the more deadly it would be, and the further that they could throw it. It's no different than something we would do today. And so I'm giving you all of this information, and you're like, okay, that's very great, fantastic. Why do I care? What does this have to do with spiritual armor whatsoever? Well, here's the deal. We're talking about these different size, shape, and length of these lances for a reason, because you've got to pick up on what was being said in verse 18. It says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this, and with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Because you've got to think about it. He's gone piece by piece with this Roman armor, everything that they have, and then suddenly he leaves one out that was very crucial. Well, that doesn't make any sense, except if you're in that time period, you pick up on what's happening, because there was a myriad of lances. They didn't just have a lance that they used. They had several that they used in different variations. And then he says, I want you to pray with all kinds of prayer and things like that. This is the picture that he has going on in his mind. He's picturing prayer and thinking of these lances because there's not just one kind of prayer. There's a lot of different kinds of prayer. And so in verse 18, where it says, praying always with all prayer. This word, all prayer, in the Greek, bear with me. Did I put it up there? Oh, I did. It's that. I can't say any of those. I can say the first one, dia. Passus prosciusis. I don't know. Something like that. And basically... It says all prayer. It would honestly be better translated that it says all kinds of prayer. And what Paul is telling us is that we have to pick up our final weapon, which is prayer. And he's utilizing this imagery of all these different kinds of lances because there are all sorts of different kinds of prayer. And so Paul instructs us to use each one of these forms of prayer as it is needed. And they're mentioned all throughout Scripture. And God has given us this weapon. He's given the church several different kinds of prayer. That's why in the phrase in Ephesians 6.18 could be translated, or would be better translated, to pray with all manner of prayer. Or prayer with, pray with all kinds of prayer. Or pray with all the kinds of prayer that are available for you to use. There's all sorts of different ones. As Paul writes about the different kinds of prayer, he sees this mental picture of the various type of lances that are available to the Roman soldier. The long ones, the short ones, the wide ones, the narrow, the dull, the multiple blade, all of those different kinds. And so what this tells us very emphatically in this, but it's almost cryptid in there. You have to have, again, we got to remember when we read our Bible, our Bible was not written to us. It was written for us. Okay? All of these things were written so that we could have understanding is what Paul said. 
But these were written to a people of that time who would have had an understanding of this. So a lot of times when we read this stuff, we brush over this because we have a Western mindset when we're reading an Eastern document. We wouldn't do that with anything else, but we do it with the Bible because we forget that while it wasn't written to us, it was written for us. This is here for our understanding. And it requires some digging at different times. And so what he's saying is there's not one kind of prayer that is better than any other kind of prayer. And everybody usually has the one that they like. It's the fact that we have to use the one that is right and effective at the time that we need it. And so the question comes, how often should we pray? At the beginning of Ephesians 6.18, Paul says that we are praying always. The word always there is in Ponte Cairo. This is three different words here. The word in means at. The word panti, P-A-N-T-I, is each and every. It's an all-encompassing word that embraces everything, including the smallest and most minute of details. And the word Cairo means times and seasons. And so when you put these words together, it'd be more accurately to say that at each and every occasion we pray, or at every opportunity, or every time you get a chance, or at every season, or at each and every possible moment. The idea here is that anytime you get a chance, no matter where you are or what you're doing, at every opportunity, every season, and every possible moment, you got to take that time to pray. This is where we fail. You see, the difference between the church in the New Testament and the church we have today is they were always praying. And you know what the difference between them and us is? Distractions. I was talking to a friend of mine, he's a pastor of a church, and he, you know, we were discussing because we do not see the miraculous like they saw the miraculous. And all that does is give credence that the miraculous has stopped. It's given credence to their, their faulty beliefs. But the bottom line is this, is like we're so distracted. These guys lived it. They were in it. They prayed always. I mean, you think about when you've got to walk from town to town doing whatever it is you're going to do. You've got lots of quiet time. You know, we can be 90 miles in an hour, depending on how fast you drive, but you can do it. You know, I mean, we just don't have the time. We have all these different things in our lives that are distracting us from the thing. And here he is, he's saying prayer always, at every opportunity, every time you get a chance. I mean, just do it. Prayer is one of the most ignored pieces of weaponry used by the body of Christ today. We don't use it because it's more exciting to talk about the shield of faith. Sword of the Spirit, that's the one you always hear about. Or, or the helmet of... I mean, we talk about all this other stuff, and we ignore the prayer aspect. In fact, a lot of times when the, when the armor is taught, it's taught about six pieces. It doesn't even read verse 18, because it doesn't specifically tie it in there. And it's so often missed, and yet Paul knows that prayer is important. The lance of prayer, the spear of prayer, however you want to say it, is of equal importance to every other piece of the armor. No one piece is more important than the other. They all work in unison. And what I find interesting about that is when we see how this no, no army, uh, no soldier would ever go out without the entire armor on, right? It would be foolishness. And yet, how they work in unison with one common goal. And I look at the, the words that they say that we are one body, made up of many members, all for one purpose, right? And how these things always seem to intertwine one another. I just find that fascinating. So, here we are, we're going to look at prayer. And there are six kinds of prayer 
used in the New Testament primarily. There are more, but we're going to look at six of them. And we are not going to look at all six of them today. Because it's, it takes a lot of time to break these down. I don't want to just give you a surface level understanding of prayer. Although at the same time, this isn't meant to be a super in-depth understanding of prayer. It's more of why do we pray, the different kinds of prayer, and how do we use them. Something that you can take home with you and begin to introduce today. And so, the most common word for prayer in the New Testament is taken from the Greek word prashuts. Okay, I think I have it up there. It's used approximately 127 times in the New Testament. And it's the very word that Paul's using there in Ephesians 6, 18, where he says, praying always with all prayer, is this prosius word. And it's made of two words. The first one is pros. And this word is a preposition, which means face-to-face. I have that up there. You see this word used in John 1, 1 to betray. And what it's betraying is the intimate relationship that exists between the members of the Godhead. So let's look at John 1, 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The word with is taken from the word prose here. It's describing a very intimate relationship between the Father and the Son. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was face to face with God, is how you could say it. The word prose is also used in Ephesians 6.12, which we read a little bit ago, to picture our close contact with these unseen, demonic spirits, the things that are set out against us. It's showing this close relationship. In other words, we're face-to-face with these things all the time. Nearly everywhere that it's used in the New Testament, the word prose carries the meaning of a close, upfront, intimate contact with someone else. And it's used often. And so, again, it's a preposition. It's talking about... It's getting to somewhere, okay? This face-to-face relationship. The second part of the word is the word euch, E-U-C-H-E. This is an old Greek word that describes a wish, a desire, a prayer, or a vow. A wish, a desire, a prayer, or a vow. It was originally used to pick a person who made some kind of a vow to God because of a need or a desire. So in other words, the individual would vow to give something of great value to them to God in exchange for a favorable answer to prayer. Now this seems kind of odd to us in our thinking because we're like, well, we don't bribe God. But yet you see these all throughout Scripture. It's usually used, this word here is usually used to describe somebody who is beginning a walk with God. For, for, in other words, they've given their life to Christ, is how we would say it. Or they're starting out on a new venture. So let's look at a couple of examples of this. In Genesis 28, we see the story of Jacob, right? Jacob and Esau. And in this, Jacob stole the birthright from Esau. He convinced Esau for a bowl of beans to give up his birthright, which means that that birthright really had very little value to Esau. But, so in the promise that was made there, he had to deceive his own father, to get the blessing put upon him. And these are things that we don't comprehend because we don't act like this in our culture at all. But he had to deceive his father. And so here we get in verse 20, Genesis 28 and verse 20, it says, Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey, I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. You see tithing there. It's interesting. I won't get off on that tangent. But look what he's saying. God, if you will do this, if you'll watch over me, 
and make sure that I have plenty of food and to eat and everything is well and I make it back to my father's house, then you will be my God. So I'll make a deal. I'm going to cut a deal with you. And then he set up an, an altar, if you will, of stones or whatever as a remembrance of that. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But here we see this bargaining going, God, if you'll do this, then I'll do this. Another example of this can be found with the story of Hannah, who is the mother of Samuel. Hannah wanted a child bad and was not able to become pregnant. So out of great desperation, she prayed and basically said, if you'll do this, give me a child, I'll commit him to your work. So in 1 Samuel 1, starting in verse 11, here's what we see. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. And that has something to do with paganism, in case you're wondering what that's referring to. Because we're like, oh, no haircuts. Okay, that's odd. Just so you know. Verse 19, jump down there. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel saying, because I asked the Lord for him. So what she did is she made a vow to God. In exchange for God giving her a son, she vowed that she would raise her son to be solely devoted to him. And, and that significance on that whole razor thing. In other words, because you've got to understand the time. There were other gods out there that were being worshipped. There's a reason that Israel gets taken separately and all of that. She's devoting him to his service, but also the work of the ministry. And we all know that Samuel was the greatest prophet, or not the greatest, but a great prophet. And a lot of what he said um, was very, very powerful. And so again, here's the thing. God, if you'll do, then I will. And it's all out there on the line. But there's another example of it, and we see it actually from Jesus. In Matthew chapter 26 and verse 39. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will. But as, as you will. What he's doing here is he's crying out, God, if there's any way, take this thing from me. But I won't, you know, I won't separate from that. Again, you just see these patterns. And technically, these are all a yuke, if you will. And quite frequently what you see, that people seeking an answer of prayer would offer a gift of thanksgiving to God before it would happen. That's why Jacob built that altar. And you see that a lot of times. So often before a person would verbalize this prayer, he would set up some commemorative altar or offer a sacrifice or something. Something of thanksgiving to God in advance to the answer of the prayer that was coming. And these were called votive offerings. And this word votive is coming from the word vow, or where we get our word vow. It was similar to a pledge. So once the prayer was answered, then they would go back and give an additional thanksgiving to God. You, and if you've been in church any amount of time before, they're always said you pray once and you're giving thanks for it over and over again. This is where that pattern comes from. All of this information that I just gave you gives the backdrop for this word prosuk that we're looking at. First, it tells us that prayer should bring us face to face and eyeball to eyeball with God in an intimate relationship. It's more than some mechanical formula that we use. The idea of sacrifice is also associated with this word. You've got to remember, this is the most used word for prayer in the New Testament. It shows an individual who so desperately desire to see their prayer answered that they're willing to surrender everything that they own, whatever it is, in exchange for this answer. And so this describes an altar of sacrifice and consecration 
in prayer when a person's life is yielded to God. The Holy Spirit may convict the hearts of things that need to be changed in a person's life, but He'll never forcibly take them from someone. He'll never forcibly remove this. And so this word for prayer points to a place of decision in consecration, an altar where we freely vow to give our lives to God in exchange for His. This is why it's the, prim- the most used one. This is why we say this is the one that you see when someone gives their life to Christ. What God is telling us is that He desires to do more than merely bless us. He wants to change us. Thanksgiving was a vital part of this. When we offer genuine prayer and faith, which never stop thanking God in advance for hearing and answering our prayers. We never stop thinking. We always thank Him. This Greek word refers to much more than just making a simple prayer request. It's also active surrender and consecration. The idea is from this face-to-face relationship with God, that we can have that with Him, we give our lives in exchange for His. Does that make sense? You guys with me still? It's, it's so crucial that we understand this because, and we've talked about this before, but this is not the message that's being preached around this country. Around this country is, you come to Jesus just how you are, He'll take you just the way you are, which is true. And then you're forgiven. You're in heaven. Say this prayer. Repeat after me. Bow your head close after me. You know, all of this, this different stuff. This isn't the uh, God in exchange for your life that you paid on that cross that you've given for me for forgiveness. Here's what I will do. I will devote my life as a living sacrifice to you. I will give it all to you. You have everything. Everything I have belongs to you. Jesus said you've got to give away, get rid of everything and follow me. Everything. The rich young ruler, he tells him that, okay, you know, the one thing that's in your way is your money. Go sell everything you have and then come follow me. Guy couldn't do it. He wasn't willing to vow everything. It's crucial that we understand that. And so that's the first one, this pursuit. The second one is the prayer of petition. The prayer of petition. This is the second most used word of prayer in the New Testament. It comes from the Greek word desis, D-E-E-S-I-S. It's often translated prayer and petition. More than 40 times in the New Testament is translated that way. It's used in Ephesians 6.18 is where it says praying always with all prayer and supplication. Jesus here is translated uh, supplication. It's taken from the verb denomai, D-E-O-M-A-I, which literally describes a need or a want. It's the picture of a person that has some sort of a need or desire in their life. Now, as time has passed, this word began to take on the meaning of prayer, the kind of prayer that expresses one's basic needs and one's wants to God. Now, when we hear needs or wants, what do we immediately think of? We think of stuff, right? That's not what this is referring to. This is the very basic needs of a person, not the desires, nothing tangible per se, not larger homes or more expensive cars or a boat or whatever it may be. This has to do with the basic needs that an individual must have in order to continue to exist. I mean, we're talking the basic of basic. It's a petition or a cry for God's help. And what it happens in this is it comes from a very humble heart and it exposes the insufficiency of a person to meet their own needs. This is where we should all get to. A lot of us aren't there, but this is where we should all get to. And Jesus prayed like that. Hebrews 5 and 7 says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, He offered up prayers and petition, that's that word, with fervent cries and tears to the one who would save Him from death. 
And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Again, this prayers and petition part is the word desis. And what this is showing is Jesus was very aware of his humanity in his life and what he was getting ready to do. And Jesus prayed deeply from his heart. And he was asking the Father to provide divine assistance. I need help to pull off what you've asked me to do. I cannot do this on my own. I don't possess the ability. He was so aware of it that it, it made him, it says, strong crying in tears. He was with fervent cries and tears. I mean, this was intense. What's happened is some people have tried to turn this into some sort of a formula for prayer and that you can't pray without weeping, which isn't what this is doing. This is showing what, what Jesus was doing. That he was crying out for God to empower Him and to meet His most basic needs for the strength and the power to do what He was sent there to do. You see this word used again in James 5.17. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. So here he is. His prayed earnestly is taken from this word, desis. And even though Elijah was this great man of God, a, a very powerful prophet, he recognized his own inability to do anything significant for God outside of his abilities. It, it all required God. And so Elijah's facing a tough deal here. The king was wicked, and his wife was more wicked. They were killing everybody who believed in God, and they introduced idolatry into the land of Israel. And so they would kill their kids... And idol worship. They would child sacrifice to these false gods. And so Elijah prayed for God's judgment so the people would snap out of it. And so he prayed for no rain, which of course would lead to a famine. And so and he didn't pray for 42 months. And then after a big showdown, the king and the queen and the, all the false prophets that were there, he prays for rains, and it rains, right? Jesus almost always portrays a cry for help, almost always. It's a person praying uh, that is appealing to God from a position of humility as they ask God to grant some kind of special petition. The prayer petition is therefore this prayer that exposes a person's insufficiency and his continual need for God. Now that doesn't mean that we wholeheartedly separate all of these things. We often pray from humility. When we see ourselves as lost and in our sin, it should be from a humble heart and a thankful one that God has provided a way for us out of that. So these two things do intertwine. Just a couple more verses. I'm just going to give you the references if you're taking notes that talk about this same thing. It's 2 Corinthians 8.4 and 1 Thessalonians 3.10. So 2 Corinthians 8.4, 1 Thessalonians 3.10 uses that same word, desis, referring to this prayer petition. And so the last one that we're going to talk about today is the prayer of authority. The prayer of authority. It's the third form that's taken from the Greek word aiteo, A-I-T-E-O. It's used approximately 80 times in the New Testament, and it's the third most common word for prayer. But this one's a little different than the previous two that we were talking about because the definition for this is it means I asked or I demand. Okay? So at first, this probably seems strange to us because we don't think of prayer in a demanding type, like we're going to demand something from God. We always think of somebody who humbly requests something from God. But rather than describe someone who prays authoritatively, authoritatively we're demanding something from God. This is what this verse is talking about. This word here, this ateo, is someone who is demanding from God. 
This person knows what they need and they're not afraid to boldly ask it. So unlike the word desis, which has a lot more to do with the spiritual needs or wants, this word iteo is, is more to do with this, the physical needs of something that we need, the tangible needs for food or, or shelter or finances or whatever the case may be. I mean, this is more something like that. And so the question I always ask in the, looking at this word is how can one approach God with such frankness, commanding and demanding that his needs be met by God? I mean, why, how, how do we do this? Well, Jesus gave us the key to understanding this in John 15. John 15 and verse 7 says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. The word ask, say ATO, or however you say it, the phrase could be translated like this, you shall demand what you will. Now again, this is disturbing for a lot of us to think about. Because you're like, well, no, 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 no. It's only if it's according to God's will that you can demand it. Well, that's really not what the verse comes right out and says, right? It says, ask whatever you want, and it'll be done for you. It doesn't say that you have to ask according to God's will. It just says ask, right? We can't make the verse say something that's not there. Unless we can. Because we've got to keep it in context. We've got to understand the context. And when you look at this, again, and I always say this often, we've got to read these verses very slowly and chew on the words. But the context of this makes it a lot more sense. At the beginning of the verse, it says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. The word abide is used twice. Abide is the Greek word meno, M-E-N-O. It means to stay, to dwell, to lodge, to remain, to indwell, to continue, to remain in constant union with, or take up permanent residency. For you note takers, I'll give you just a second to write all of that down. You can say it like this, if you permanently and habitually lodge, dwell, abide, and remain continually in me, and if my words permanently and habitually lodge, dwell, stay and remain continually in you, you will be able to strongly ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. The key is the if you abide in me and my words abide in you because those are very strong word that word abide. This isn't just like if you read your Bible once in a while, pray for whatever the heck you want and I'll just give it to you. Jesus isn't our fairy godmother. Okay? Jesus knew that if His words took this permanent residency in our hearts, that we would never ask for something that was out of line of the will of God. We won't do it because we know His Word. They're in us. When we renew our mind to the Word of God and we meditate on it day and night, we'll never pray something that is outside of the will of God because we'll know the Word of God. The Word of God is the will of God. In case you were ever wondering how did the two uh, come together, that's what it is. God's word is in God's, or God's will is in God's word. And when you know it, when your mind is renewed to it, anything contrary to it throws up red flags everywhere. The problem happens and the mistakes we make is when something that maybe seems odd because it is odd doesn't jump out to us right away because we don't spend enough time in his word. We don't read it. We don't meditate on it. We don't memorize it. We don't study it. The only thing we do is we do devotions. The American church is great at devotions. We're, we're terrible at an understanding. The devotional reading is picking up John 3.16 saying, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whosoever believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's like, Jesus loves me. That's great. And then we walk away. We don't look at the deeper things of why He loves us and why He died. We don't put ourselves in the position there to do that. And so when you know 
you're praying according to the will of God, you don't have to worry about uttering some request that would be contrary to it. You are bold with it. You can boldly assert your faith and expect God to move on your behalf. That's the whole premise of this thing here. Let's look at a couple verses. Hebrews 4 and 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace and help in the time of need. Does this say anything about come down on your hands and knees and beg me? No, because it's already been promised. We enter boldly because we know it's a throne of grace. We know we've been forgiven and we walk in there with our head held high. This Greek word itio is also found in 1 John 5. In verse 14, Now this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. In the first part of the verse, this is the, ver- the confidence here. The word confidence is parousia. It's always to pick someone who is exceedingly bold or courageous. This is not a shy person. This is someone who's got a lot of confidence. The verse goes on to say that if you ask anything according to his will, that he hears us. The word ask, want to guess what that word is? It's the Greek word aiteo, A-I-T-E-O. The word is used again connecting the knowing the will of God for one's life. And so what's happening is John here is making the connection between these two in 1 John and in John 15. That he's making a similar assertion that if the word of God dwells in us. And if we pray according to the indwelling word, we can come into the presence of God and make requests known with great boldness, courageous, and confidence. We do not have to walk in there shy. In other words, there's nothing wrong with demanding the promises that God has given you. Because you are praying according to the will of God. We take the promises of God, and in those, let's just... Talk about healing would be one. Financial prosperity does not mean you're going to be rich. It means all your needs are met according to His riches and glory. All the things that go with that, we have different formulas of how we receive them. Yet one promise of God is the whole premise of John 3.16. And the whole thing in with that is that we can get anybody to come as they are and give their life to Jesus and make Him Lord and Savior with no strings attached, but we put strings on every other promise. We're not bold enough. We're not demanding enough. And our faith, frankly, isn't strong enough. We have not accepted the truth of that. We can accept salvation as truth, no problem. And the biggest reason for that is we are not facing reality or eternality every single day. We don't have the eternity of, of life sitting here in front of us. I think I could die today. I better be right with God. We don't think about that. But when you're sick, you're facing healing right now. I mean, you think about it. Is if I told you that I'm going to need you to bench press 350 pounds, okay? I'm going to give you six weeks before you need to do it. And you have to do it. There are extreme consequences. I can't think of any good ones. But there's a consequence if you can't pull it off, right? Now, most of us in here would do the smart thing. I have six weeks. I better get to working out, right? And we're going to go in there, and we're going to train, and we're going to give everything, and we're going to lift weights, and we're going to take protein powder. We'll probably change our diets. We'll do push-ups. You know, we might do some sit-ups. I don't know. You know, all of the same. But we know we have six weeks before we need it. We don't do that with faith. We wait till we're in a crisis, 
and then try to go build faith in the midst of that crisis. That would be the same thing as that, okay, I'm giving you six weeks to bench press 350 pounds. You're like, well, I hope I can do it when I get there. And you never did anything leading up to it. You see what I'm saying? That's a stupid illustration. I know it is. It's terrible. But you get the point. Is that here we know that the things of this world are going to come against us. The enemy is, is going to attack us. And we are going to need our faith built up in order to do or face whatever we're coming up against. Why do we wait to build our faith until the attack? Why don't we do the things that the Bible says to do? Put on that whole armor every day. And in order to do that, you have to know what it is. And in order to know what it is, you have to read your Bible. In order to read your Bible, you have to be intentional of doing the things of God. We have to do something. And it's this demand, this, this very powerful word. Three more references I'm going to give you that has to do with this, and then I'm going to wrap this thing up for today. Ephesians 3.20, James 1, 5, and 6, 1 John 3.22. I'll use this, this same word, atio. Ephesians 3.20, James 1, 5, and 6, 1 John 3, and 22. Here's the bottom line. We only talk about three. There are six. We're going to continue this over the next two weeks to bring this out. But there's a reason that Paul talks about this in the way that he does. You see the connection there. Because a lot of people miss it. They don't, if you remember our Holy Spirit series, when we talked about that, I said, look what is in the armor of God, right? Look what is there. Praying in the Spirit at all times. We're talking about different things. Why is that in with the armor? Well, we're going to get to that, right? These are the things that we so easily miss because we just blow through it. We think because we've heard one sermon on it that we know it all. We've got to do the things of God. We've got to know the things of God. And so over the next couple weeks, I'm hoping you guys will grasp an understanding of prayer, the different kinds of prayer, and it will inspire you to maybe, maybe pray a little bit more often. 